This is Dorel Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 85, Secrets to Investing with the 1%. Stay tuned. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What's going on, tribe? Welcome to another installment, another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. Let me start this episode by saying this. I make it one of my highest priorities, one of my highest objectives to make sure that I'm always objective when it comes to you guys, at least. I don't put my seal on anything really these days. And that's largely because many of the guests that come on the show, I've never tried their product, whether it's an investment deal, whether it's a course, whether it's a seminar, whether it's a book, many of them, I've never tried their product. And I only like to back things and back people and share these resources with you guys when I've actually tried somebody's product or service. I mean, that's in large, that's probably 99.999% of the reason why back at the beginning of this year, I stopped doing sponsorships. I completely, like if you listen to 2016's episodes, you'll hear quite a few sponsors, but I completely stopped doing sponsorships because I wanted to protect you guys. I wanted to make sure that you guys didn't go out and find or follow or, or purchase something from somebody because you heard it on this show and you believe that I had probably or maybe vetted this person or this product. So I completely stopped doing sponsorships and I completely 100% have not endorsed anybody yet on the show. This is another large reason why I started having my own product suite because I didn't have a place to turn people when people would be like, okay, well, you're not endorsing the people on this show, but where can I get my help? Where, where can I get some of these services? Where can I get some of these products? Where can I get coaching and consulting and all these things? And that's kind of how Before the Millions was actually born. Now we're going to get into a lot of that on the very next episode. So tune in next Tuesday because we're going to get into a lot of that. But I bring this up to say that on today's show, we are speaking with, and let me first back up. I passively invest with a online crowdfunding real estate platform. Now, I'll explain what that is in a minute. But a while ago, maybe even a year ago or a little bit over a year, I wanted to get the CEO of that platform on the podcast. I thought it would be super valuable to get somebody like that on the podcast to give this certain perspective that we're going to talk about on the show, actually, but to give this certain perspective of real estate and real estate investing, more specifically things like REITs real estate investment trusts and crowdfunding and everything that kind of goes with this new technological wave. 
but instead of reaching out to the CEO, I reached out to who I believe to be like an executive PR person who does most of the podcast for them. And, you know, I was just like, man, this is going to be super valuable content to get in, you know, get into this space. I reached out a few times and I didn't hear back. But that's probably in large part due to the fact that they are probably the biggest crowdfunding platform out there for everyday people. On this episode, we are interviewing the CEO of another crowdfunding platform, one that I do not invest in, one that I heard about because I'm interviewing the CEO. And since interviewing the CEO, I've went to go research a whole lot of platforms and learn the pros and cons of a lot of them and things that you guys should be doing as you are looking for a platform to invest in. So I'm not going to give you a recommendation as far as what crowdfunding platform to invest in if you choose to invest in crowdfunding, but I wanted to get a perspective of somebody in the business. And naturally, again, guys, when that happens on a show like this, you may want to go check them out or check out their site. And I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm also saying that I'm not endorsing any of the investment opportunities that you do here on this show. And if I do endure something, you will know. Trust me. <laughs> so on today's show, we are interviewing Mr. Craig Cecilio. Now, Craig is the founder and CEO of Diversity Fund. Diversity Fund is a crowdfunding platform, and they do provide wealth opportunities through real estate that you can invest in passively. You know, often we talk about real estate and how passive it is. And quite frankly, most real estate vehicles, most of the way that investors are investing in real estate is not really all that passive. You know, so if you have a full-time job, it's almost like you're acquiring another skill and you're getting into another career most of the time. What I believe, what I deem to be truly passive or as close to passive as possible when it comes to real estate is a vehicle like this to where you are investing, you are pulling together your money with other investors and there are people in charge of these deals, to put in layman's terms. And they do all the things in their skill set to get you a return on your investment. You have no say-so in anything. You have no meetings to show up to. You get your report at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter. You get your dividends and you get your returns. That is passive investing. And in my business, I'm one of those people in charge of deals to help passive investors invest their money wisely. Now, I do this on an offline basis. So I do this with people I know, like, and trust. But there's something that happened quite a bit of time ago that allowed this to be in the online space. Before 2013, 2014, most people, most everyday people, the average Joe wasn't able to get into some of these multi-million dollar deals, these billion dollar deals, these exclusive deals, these deals that most people never hear of. You know, you hear everyday people who don't listen to this podcast, of course, fighting over 4% and 5% returns a year and 6% returns a year as if that's the upper limit. That's the goal. But when you start acquiring knowledge and being inquisitive and finding successful investors who are experienced and love what they do and they love to share, you'll start realizing that there are certain investments that the upper 1% are privy to that quite literally most of us will never hear about. On this show, we talk about Kobe Bryant, who invested in a deal, $6 million. He invested $6 million in a deal. And a few short years later, as a venture capitalist, he was able to net $200 million. Now that's 33X on your investment. That is insane for most people. Yet, and still, savvy investors, sophisticated investors are being exposed to deals like this every single day. Now you know why they say the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. 
So Dore, how do I get in? How do I how do I get some of these deals? How do I insert myself in a circle like this? Well, I mean, the straightforward answer is you can't, right? Some of you may refer to this as the good old boys club. And we're going to talk about that on the show. We're going to talk about Craig's need to get some of these sophisticated investments out to the public, out to the masses so that everybody could invest in these investments. And this is exactly how a lot of the CEOs of these companies start. So if you want to know how an everyday Joe can invest in large deals without a whole lot of money, I forgot that part, without a whole lot of money, then this episode is definitely for you. In fact, we're going to tell you exactly how to make 10x on your investment in the next five years. And if you think that's crazy, you're not yet hanging around the right circles. That's a 15% return every year for five years. So before we get to the show, I'll throw in this one caveat. The reason that most of us are not exposed to these types of investments are because we're not around people who are exposed. So there's, I mean, it's almost like, how do you even learn about the fact that there is knowledge to acquire about something like this? Like, where do you even start if you've never heard this before? And that's why we have this podcast, right? That's why you're listening. That's why you're tuning in. And that's why you're subscribed. But even knowing about these deals doesn't guarantee you a seat at the table. How you get a seat at the table, and there are levels, guys. There's an accredited level. And if you guys don't know what accredited means, it's this big fancy word that really just means, hey, I'm worth a million dollars. Or I make $200,000 a year. Or jointly with my spouse, we make $300,000 a year. If you meet any of those criteria, you are an accredited investor. And you can be privy to certain deals that most people aren't. And then there's another level. And that may be a sophisticated investor. And that's like the upper 1%, the cream of the crop deals. And these may be the most volatile deals as well, guys, because I mean, hey, sometimes to win big, you have to play big. So there's a lot more risk involved or perceived risk involved. Rich Dad's Guide to Investing book is a book that will literally walk you through the levels. I think there are five levels of investing and he'll walk you through the levels, levels that you've never even heard of, that you've never even thought were possible. But on today's show, we're going to talk to you about crowdfunding. We're going to talk to you about how these platforms that came around in 2013, 14, 15, and 16, because of certain changes in the SEC, how these platforms are now making certain types of deals available for the general public. And guys, just to close a loop from earlier, when I told you guys that I've been investing in one of these crowdfunding platforms for a while, the one that I've been investing in and the one that I reached out to to be on the episode is Fundrise. So if any of you guys haven't heard of it, and again, I'm not endorsing Fundrise, but I know that it may be on some of your minds. Like, I wonder which which one Duray is investing in. I invest in Fundrise, but there's so many of them, guys. I mean, there's Diversity Fund, which we have the CEO on the show today. There's CrowdStreet, there's Real Street, there's Roofstock, there's Realty Shares, there's Realty Mogul. There's so many guys. So do your homework. And if this is something that you're interested in passively, truly passively investing in real estate, this is probably one of the best ways to go. So without further ado, I bid you adieu, and you can go ahead and get to the show. DeRay's Tip of the Week. Okay, so the age-old question, why most people will never get rich. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm not even going to tease. I'm just going to tell you the number one reason, and this is not scientifically proven. I literally thought to myself, what's stopping everybody? And I got it. And there's nothing that you can do about it. Why? Because it's law. Well, DeRay, what do you mean? How dare you tell me I can never be rich? And it's the law. It is. Now, when I say the word Parkinson's, most people are going to think of the disease. And Parkinson's disease doesn't really fit in with the overall scheme theme of our show, right? So I'm talking about a law, though. A law that states 
work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. What does that mean in English? Let me repeat it again. Work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. So the work that you're doing, no matter what it is, it will expand to fill up the time that you've allotted, the time that you've set aside for this task, for this work. It will use up every single second of that time that you give it, every single time. And it's law. This is called Parkinson's law. So let me give you an example. If you are parallel parking and the spot that you're parallel parking in has enough space for two cars, how easy would it be for you to get it on your first try? How easy would it be for you to parallel park? How much space would you use when you're backing in? Would you use up some of the space where that second car is just to get in a little bit tighter just because it's easier? After all, the space is big enough for two cars, even though you might not be directly in the middle so that a two car space now has been occupied by one car. In the act of parking, you may use up both spaces to get into your space. So what I'm saying is when you see that there's more than enough room available, you are going to use that to your advantage. I mean, think about it. If there was only one space for your car to pull off its parallel park and to park in that space in that spot, then you would make it work with that limited amount of space because that's all you have to work with. That's as much as you can expand because there are cars that fill up the other spots. The same thing works with money. The same thing works with wealth creation. The reason most people never get beyond whatever means they're at right now is because as soon as they do, as soon as you get that that raise next year, as soon as you get that raise, you don't even notice But your expenses automatically, whether it's that day, that month, the next three months, gradually, but there's a shift and that space is immediately filled up with expenses. It's like taking your family out to eat on a $50 gift card. You're going to have to budget. You're going to have to make sure that you cut your quota. You only spend what you have. But if you have a $100 gift card, you may feel a little bit more free. You may feel a little bit more loose, right? Because there's some wiggle room there. And you want to be able to take advantage of that. You don't remember the $50 gift card now. I mean, the $50 gift card that was able to provide you and your family ample food and that you guys enjoyed yourself. Because if you did, maybe you'd you'd be at 55 or 60 with this new $100 gift card. Maybe you'd go over just a little bit. But instead, what we tend to do is we tend to now cut our new quota, which is 100, and we tend to spend all 100. And this happens in every single area of our life. How many instances can you think of where this has happened with time? Sometimes it gets us in trouble. Oh, I have a little bit extra time. And I notice sometimes when that happens to me, I'm actually later than I would have been if I didn't have a whole lot of time. Just backwards, right? I know. Don't judge me. Or what about with with homework for those of you in college or in school? There may be an assignment that you know is going to take you about three days to complete, like for a fact you know that it's going to take you about three days complete and it's not due for the next seven days. So you procrastinate day after day. You procrastinate because you know that you still have a few days. And I mean, come on, it's going to take you three days, but you have seven. Even when you have six, it's still not crucial for you to get that done immediately when you can use that time for other things and you get down to five and four. And what's crazy is even if you slip up and you mess up and you're you're down to your last day and you haven't started that assignment, an assignment that you know that should take you about three days because of Parkinson's law working in reverse, what normally happens? You get it done. 
just in the nick of time. You get it done. So the tip of the week today is really just to be aware of this law, to be aware of Parkinson's law and its role in your life. There are tricks and there are hacks for Parkinson's law. And some of them you already implement without even thinking about, similar to that assignment. Some of you already have the mindset that I know that if I give myself three days, I'm going to use all three days to do this assignment. So I normally just wait to the last. Like some of you have that mindset. I know I have in the past. Like I'm going to wait till the last day because that's when like I'm going to be really, really sharp because I have such a condensed time to hurry up and get this out. So a lot of us, we've been operating under this law and using it to our advantage without even really knowing. Now, I want some of us to start thinking about how we can use this law to our advantage with money. So here's an idea. Maybe every two weeks when you get your check, you automatically have 25% of your check go to another account that you never see before any expenses are paid, before any other thing is touched. Like it's almost like what you see in your primary checking account is how much you get paid from work. And start with something small if if you think that you can't do that or your expenses are exactly how much you get paid because again, they are because it's Parkinson's law, right? But start with maybe 5% of what you make and put that in another account. And then you'll notice that, hey, there's no difference between my what I'm getting, like my bank for my buck when I make $2,000 every two weeks as opposed to making $1,950 every two weeks. Like that $50 that I'm putting into this other account, I don't even notice it. My life has now contracted to the $1,950 that I'm getting every two weeks. Then maybe do $1,900 and then eventually $1,500 to where now you're saving a bulk of your money so that you can start investing in your future. And your lifestyle, I guarantee you, is not going to change all that much, especially if you do it gradually. So we went from thinking about how terrible Parkinson's law is in our lives to how amazingly we can use this law to our advantage. I hope you enjoyed the tip of the week. Now let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. Craig is the founder of Diversity Fund. Kind of want to go on the time machine and figure out how uh, Diversity Fund came to be, how Craig Celio came to be. I mean, this has probably been a long time coming. Most entrepreneurs aren't born overnight. So let's maybe take, take it back in the time machine. It's always the age old argument. Is it genetic or is it environmental? And some of the backstory goes to my great grandfather who actually moved from Italy to South Africa and worked in the diamond mines and then moved from got some diamonds, moved there during the Great Depression, bought some land outside New York. And uh, he was kind of uh, an entrepreneur back in the day there. So that you could say that's kind of my genetic makeup coming from that bloodline there. And I think he really kind of, on my mother's side, he signified a little bit of what I'm doing today. And there you have myself over the years. I'd say when I was growing up, I was always someone who organized a lot of events. I have some embarrassing things I used to do as a kid. And actually, we put on plays, which is really embarrassing to say, but we actually put on neighborhood plays. And my neighbor and I were like the stars and we were singing. Uh, Something happened along the way. I lost my voice. She's made a couple albums along the way. But for me, I think at 10 was my peak in my singing days. And so I always got that natural more. I was more the organizer of the event, knocking on the doors, the neighborhoods, to get them to attend the event. And that was more me than anything else. So I think I always had that in my blood as, as a kid. And so the rest of life was pretty easy for me to take that step forward to always kind of go beyond myself, to always open a door, step through that door when that door opened. And uh, I like to say that a lot of opportunities are presented to us across our lifetimes. And what do we do? Do we take that step through that door to take advantage of that opportunity? 
And I've uh, kind of took them out many times in life from where I grew up on the East Coast, where I moved and studied in college, which is in Colorado, and then moving eventually out here out West. Every time that door opened, I kind of stepped through it and I was always open to learning more and always wanting to grow outside myself. I love that. And let's, let's kind of take it right there to where you were kind of studying. You were in Colorado and what were you studying and what was kind of your path at that time? You know, back then I always thought like college was like trying to figure yourself out. So maybe I was trying to study myself and figure out what did I want to do eventually. I came from such an institutionalized area that where I was raised, it was a lot of uh, Catholic upbringing. And it was, you had to become a doctor and attorney and an accountant and a banker. It was always, it was so dull. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen to me. It's like, and I always had this voice and all your guidance counselors and parents and friends' parents. And it was just like, your life's already over at that. 18 years old. It's like, I was, I think in school, it was kind of, I went through three or four different majors. I did enjoy a lot of skiing and snowboarding during that time period and self-discovery, let's say. And eventually I decided along the way after kind of studying different courses and curriculums that I wanted to study as much as I can about stuff and come out of school with a degree and learn something substantive, factual that I could use in a real life situation. But more importantly, I think it really set the foundation saying, hey, I just kind of want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start businesses and do different things. And and that's what I kind of got to at the end of the day. It's uh, My experiences were great, were fantastic. I learned a lot from them. But at the end of the day, it's like, hey, I want to do something that's different, not the status quo. And then I remember I remember even having, talking to some friends back in the day. And I'm like, hey, we should buy one of these condos here. It's right on, I think the name street was, um, I think Broken Broadway. There's a, I think there's a, broad, a Broadway in every town. So it was yeah. Broadway. Like we could buy this condo for like ninety thousand dollars in Boulder, Colorado, and like today it's probably worth like a million, million and a half. And everyone's like looking at me like I'm crazy. That's a lot of money. I'm like, well, you know, in ten years it's not. So I kind of had that knack a little bit uh, for real estate. And then I just kind of studied people and how they built wealth. And most of the time, I saw that people are building wealth in this country through real estate. So that kind of caught me at an early age. I'd say before in my early twenties, maybe in my late teens, it started catching my eye to do something that would involve real estate one day. Yeah. What was your first real estate transaction? That was going to be my first transaction. It just didn't happen. <laughs> when I was like 19, I wanted that. I think it was my end of my first year out here. We flipped a condo, some condo by the water. So that would be okay. my first transaction. Yeah. Like 98 or 99. Okay. Okay. And I'm trying to get a grasp on how you you know, started this magnificent company? Like, where did you start drawing the drawing, I guess, the parallels between building up a business and becoming a real estate investor? Your first flip didn't, is not necessarily the type of real estate that you do today. So I want to figure out the transition between you not having any investments to you kind of figuring out, hey, maybe I want to start this company and the progression from there. Uh, that was, it's actually pretty simple. It's where I ended up when I moved to California uh, we've, well, I was reading a lot of books this time. We were studying how you build wealth through real estate. So it was in the back of my mind, no matter what I was doing, I was going to get involved in real estate in one form or manner. I got my real estate license. We found a kind of by the water. We rehabbed it and we sold it. I think it was like a $75,000 profit. And that was like ninety eight ninety nine. So I kind of came out of the gates, kind of knowing what I was doing. I think around that year, I met somebody who was doing real estate investing. Uh, he was an attorney and he was doing real estate syndication. And uh, he kind of exposed a part of real estate that I never could imagine existed. And just we became, we 
developed a friendship along the way. And uh, he exposed me to this whole part of the real estate world that, uh, let me get out of that, that I didn't even know existed. And that was the syndication part. So he started telling me how people and their friends all get together and they do projects together. They lend money to other people on projects. And uh, that was what I was kind of alluding to before is having the door open and taking advantage of that opportunity. And I was, I put myself in a position to meet people, be friendly, tell them, Hey, this is what I want to do. And, and I got exposed to this at an early age. And I kind of just got myself committed to learning that whole process. And here, here I am probably what, 23 years old. Uh, I think he was like probably in his forties telling me about something he's been doing that he was taught by other gentlemen who made a lot of wealth in real estate and kind of immersed myself in that. And so real estate syndication at the end of the day, is just bringing a group of people together to either develop a project or lend money to someone else in someone else's project. And so if that was 90, 98, I learned about that. What's real estate crowdfunding? Well, crowdfunding is the same thing, but just using technology. So I was way, you know, what's this? That's 20 years ago. So I was crowdfunding in 98. So you could say that foundation was set, but where was that foundation set? We went even back a few years there and was set back in an early age. And it was amazing. And one of the things that I did learn at that point in time, which really motivated me about it was that it was one, he says, this is how much money you can make your first year. I was like, okay, that's great. The other thing I got to understand is there's a lot of unique personalities that were involved with it. And some of the things and some things I learned and observed, I was not really, let's say, in agreement with, but I was young and I just went with it and I really wanted to learn stuff. So I couldn't speak up and say I disagreed with things, but it was really a giant boys club on doing, doing things. And I think that's in the news. If you're watching the news, even this morning, they're talking about the boys club on things. And you only let, it's a very, very exclusive investment. You're not supposed to tell people about it. There was like, Greg, we don't tell everyone about this. We only tell certain friends we know. So we keep it in the house here. And that's how they're teaching that stuff. And I always felt like, okay, I was in the dark in some things or why was it that way? So I was really kind of when here we are today, present day today, when I had the opportunity to kind of build my own business and go out on my own and try to include more and more people, this kind of was a natural fit for me to do it. That definitely makes sense. And it prompts so many questions, Craig. And I'm just thinking about the fact that you were 23 years old. This was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm just like, I mean, crowdfunding wasn't even a thing back then. Now, were you raising funds for for syndicators? Were you a a general partner? Were you a a primary syndicator looking for deals? Like, what was your role? Well, when it first started, it was basically get your feet wet, do everything. So, learn, learn every element of the business from the loan side of the business to the real estate side of the business to the development side of the business. Learn everything you could. At that point in time, I think I had a, a Palm Pilot, which if you remember the Palm Pilots, I mean, maybe you don't. So I, I was big into like collect, I, I'd meet everybody. And I'm like, how am I supposed to track all these people I meet? I was like aggressively like meeting people and getting business cards. And I was like, okay, how do I stay in touch? So I was taking them, putting them in my Palm Pilot, putting contacts in. So I always grew a big network. So I was meeting people, trying to figure out who they were, put them into some kind of, today's it's a CRM system, but back then it was the Palm Pilot. So I could kind of email them all at once. So I was thinking, okay, meet more people, uh, let them know what you're doing and kind of repeat rinse, repeat rinse and just learn as much as I can. So I kind of learned about the whole gamut of, of real estate and what I learned along the way and what I learned by observing these guys who made a lot of money, they knew when to do what? They knew when to develop a property. They knew when to lend money to somebody else doing a property. 
They knew what asset to get in at one point in time. They're very savvy with that stuff based on the market itself and based on the opportunity that presented itself. So you could say I was developed a lot of situational awareness in real estate investing at an early age. And you know, I always had a good person to talk to and bounce ideas off at that point in time as well. Progressing down that path, Craig, when was your first failure, maybe a parent failure that set you up for later success? I want to talk about one of, you know, one of those pivotal moments early on in your entrepreneurial journey that maybe shook things up for you. But the fact that that happened for you or that happened to you, however you want to view it, you know, it set you up a little bit later for success. Yeah. I mean, countless failures. Earliest failure, you know, it's not anything that has been really significant in a sense, oh, wow, this happened to me besides the, uh, a little bit market slowdowns and market crashes. With that being said, I made some kind of very conscious decisions at, at certain times, but I would say a lot of little stuff, a lot of like learning how to do sales and early age, learning how to develop businesses, learning how to hire people, learning how to deal with those issues. I could say when I finally had the chance to start my own business in 2004, we had a big deal that was supposed to close and I had a partner and he kept saying $100,000 was coming for over six months. His $100,000 never came. And so I just had to produce revenue on my own those first six months of the business and, and figure it out. And so that was a tough thing. So I'm, here I am. I signed an office lease expecting the $100,000 to come over to pay for our bills. And he kept saying, it's coming. It's coming <laughs> day after day, week after week. And so I just kind of got busy and I just started getting busy doing the hustle and just closing deals to make some money to keep the doors open. And that's the first time I opened the door to my business in 2004. So that's one case. Then you had the market crash and that was a difficult time. You did see the right in the wall. We did make some conscious decisions, which were now very beneficial. We made some decisions. I was talking to some people about creating a, a fund, a real estate fund at the time. And I think this was early 2016 and some things weren't just jiving and made a decision not to start that fund. And uh, that was a good decision because things started to collapse like a year later with that. Uh, starting funds are very difficult. They're a process. It takes a few years really to get it going and bring the money in. And then, if, you know, with a market crash, it would be a very exp- expensive endeavor. And that was just kind of really, it was, it was a tough time to get through, I think, more emotionally because it was tough to, you had a business, but you had to let go of most of your salespeople at that point in time because there's really nothing to sell. You're just kind of like, what do I do at this point in time? And again, literally someone walked through my door <laughs> and said, hey, Craig, we, you know, things are going so crazy right now, but I think in a few months, people are just going to get rid of all these assets and we should just buy the distressed assets. And it was a former employee of mine walked through my door. So there's an opportunity walking through a door. And that's when we started kind of, okay, let's, let's entertain doing this. But that whole year was like, Hey, what are we doing? And just kind of struggling, getting by uh, day to day. So that was a tough time. So always some tough times, but nothing like a, I don't know, maybe it just doesn't phase me. <laughs> you started your first business in 2004. When did you, was this diversified or, or did you start diversified a little bit later? When you diversity started- fund was, we, I didn't go full-time to diversity t- fund until two years ago, 2016. Came up with the concept in 2014. I had to shut down my previous business and sell that one off and opened up uh, diversity fund full-time with the whole, all employee. We're up to like 20 employees now. It's, uh, but, uh, and our two-year anniversary was last Friday. I want to kind of talk about diversity fund now for a little bit because you're opening up 
uh, crowdfunding and you're opening it up and you're basically, you know, empowering, as you like to say, at the average Joe to maybe invest like the 1%. So I want to I want to talk about what that means. What is diversity fund and how is this platform, you know, revolutionizing crowdfunding, especially in terms of real estate? Yeah. So our platform's primary mission is to build wealth for everyone. So open up the playing field. Like I was mentioning previously, we're not going to exclude anybody. Everyone's included. So now with the the rules from the Dodd-Frank Act and the, the Jobs Act, you can open this up to everybody. The barrier to entry is really hard and high right now to do these things, to open up a platform. A lot of people have platforms, but they're really only open up to accredited investors. To really open it up to anybody, non-accredited investors, it takes quite a bit of effort, energy, and resources to do it. So we've been going through the process with the SEC, and it's been about a 12-month process to get approved. So just for someone to start a company up, it's going to cost you kind of a million dollars to get the thing going. You have to have really some fortitude to, to see it through. So that's a barrier to entry. So if there's not a lot of companies out there that are offering these products to people because the cost to start up a company like this are kind of high, you know, most people are going to be excluded from it. So that being said, our, our mission is to get people involved in those private real estate deals that you would call your buddies on. And those people maybe are already millionaires. They're already made a million dollars. Now they're making their million into billion, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and take those same type of transactions, leveraging technology and open this up to everybody else. And what I think we mentioned before is, hey, you, you have a day job. You worked your butt off 20 years. You want to get, get involved in real estate. And no one's going to really kind of call you up on something if you have $10,000 to invest, $1,000 to invest. In some cases, even $100,000 to invest because the, the barriers are really high in some of these higher asset classes. And you, and you just want to earn some, some passive income and make some money on your money. Uh, it's just very tough for you to kind of get in the market. You might go and say, hey, I can get involved and do this, but that might be, that's a whole nother career. And then you get that quote, hey, I'm learning or I'm getting an experience. And I always say, hey, that's code. And that's code for, I like that. I don't know if I should say this, but when someone says, hey, I gained an experience, I'm like, okay, how much money did you lose? <laughs> so that's yeah. what's code. Yeah. I gained experience. It means you lost money. Hey, you had a job, you worked your tail off for 20 years. Now you have to learn a whole nother job and to become an expert at something, what's, that's 10,000 hours, according to what's the author, Malcolm Gladwell, says 10,000 10, hours to become an expert. And getting that thing is we don't want to get put ourselves in a, a situation where we have to learn from scratch everything and have possibility of everything we worked hard just just vanishing again and starting from scratch and so that's what we're about we're saying hey just diversify your portfolio that's how we got the name diversity fund put a certain percentage of your assets into alternative investments whether your net worth is ten thousand dollars today, you know, put a thousand dollars in and just learn. If your net worth is a hundred thousand, start with ten thousand. We're always about that ten percent equivalent with things, and that's what most financial advisors say. And we just go off the experts with that, and just get people their foot wet where the, their money can make money for them and get into these type of investments that are giving these high returns, fifteen to twenty percent year over year returns. Yeah. I love that. And just to kind of take it back for some of the listeners, I mean, we talk about what you guys are doing as a crowdfunding platform, but more specifically syndications. And just for you guys out there who don't know what a syndication is, I mean, just an easy example I like to throw out there is just think about you taking a trip and you getting on a plane and 
you know, every single passenger that that's on that plane has purchased a plane ticket to wherever it is the destination is. But collectively, there's, you know, there's one plane. Collectively, all these people are paying a certain portion of the fuel charges, certain portion of the salaries and so on and so forth. That is a syndication. That is where you take pools of money to strive towards a common goal for everybody that's involved. So you take that and you think about real estate and you take a bunch of investors who, you know, individually or may not have the funds to invest in some of these, you know, some of these really large offerings, but you take the power of the people, you're looking out for the people who are not able to get into some of these, you know, sophisticated investments, some of these accredited investments. Taking what you're doing and kind of thinking about the average Joe, somebody who's out there listening who's looking to get involved. What are the requirements for them? How much do they need? Do they need to be accredited? Is there a certain threshold? Um, is, it, is it only offered during certain periods? Kind of, kind of walk us through that process. Yes, what we're forming here is something that's just 10% of your net worth. We're going to have a low minimum amount between $1,000 and $2,000. So that means your net worth is has to be excluding your residence, maybe ten thousand to to get involved with something. So if you own if your car is worth ten thousand dollars and there's no free and clear, that's that that would be net worth excluding your personal residence that you have. If you have a bank account with money in it or other types of assets. So we're focusing on an asset class that it's a little bit too big for the mom pa investors. And it's too small for the large institutional investors. We do compete with them from time to time. So we're in this asset class that's between about a $20 million value and a $100 million value. Average person that they don't have enough money to get into those assets. And the larger guys, it's too small for them. They want to do these multi-million dollar, $200 million deals. So those assets, you got you to gotta ask yourself, okay, you know, what, why is this happening? Why, why can't I get involved? And it always comes to, okay, who are the gatekeepers of these assets? The brokers and the broker-dealer world. So what, what are they motivated on? Well, they're motivated on commissions, right? Commissions. They want to get paid. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, do they want to talk to 100 people? Do they want to talk to you? Are they going to talk to you? They're going to talk to like a hedge fund. They're going to talk to that high net worth, a guy who's got 5 million plus. They want that big whale and that's all they care about because that big commission check. They're looking for fifty, dollars $100,000 commissions. So are they going to ever talk to the average person? They might say it, they're not going to do it in actuality. So they're going to spend their, all their time there We're in that world. And so yeah. where does, does that leave the average investor? How are they going to have access to this? Well, they might have access to, you might say, someone say, hey, what about the uh, publicly traded REITs that are on the stock market? Yeah, but the, look at those returns, 2 3%. I mean, they're not returning these high, high returns. So how do you get involved? Well, and this is what we're trying to do through crowdfunding, through diversity funds, get involved into you know, a higher than better overall return than you can get through the stock market into the same asset classes as ultra rich and the wealthy. I love that. And, you know, I want to highlight again, the fact that these investments, like before 2014, these investments were not privy to the average investor. I mean, you're talking about investing a thousand dollars into a multi-million dollar asset. I mean, this is, this was unheard of. And I want you to kind of touch on really quick what happened back then, what happened in 2013, 2014, what happened with the, the Steve Jobs Act, the Dodd-Frank Act? Like you said, the Versi Fund is actually disrupting the investment space. Like this is crowdfunding and itself is brand new. So what happened during that period that allows you guys to be what you guys are today? Yeah, I think the first one got enacted in, I believe, September of 13. And that one was basically even if you were a sophisticated investor, you weren't allowed to invest into one of these things without having a pre-existing relationship. So that said, now you can do active solicitation. So if I just met you, you can invest with me. Before, it's like we had a pre-existing relationship. 
So that's the first time ever. Most people think, hey, I could just go, even I have the money, I could go invest in something. Well, that was not true until 2013. You had to develop a relationship with that firm or that person uh, for at least a significant period of time before you can invest. And then it was in 15, and these bill, I think the original bill got passed in nine. Things just moved so close. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, I remember. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it was April or May of 15, that is the Regulation E Plus got enacted, and that was for the non-accredited investor to do it. A few firms kind of jumped into that because the qualification process for the SEC is just a long period of time. So that's why you're not seeing a lot. They just kind of got started going real recent. So if it just started in April or May of 2015 and takes a year to sign up, you know, the first one's really to get activated to 16 or 17. Now we're seeing some traction uh, with a few more popping up here and there. And there's, I don't think there's a lot of, uh, these real estate crowdfunding platforms, I think maybe two, maybe the third one that really has one active. Uh, yeah. There's not many at all. And of all the ones out there, that's three. That's not really, that's not enough. As an industry, we need more. So it's because the process is so uh, arduous and, and you have the gatekeepers, in this case, the attorneys, it's a two to $300,000 at least into their, their pockets to get this thing going. You have to build out your technologies to handle all those investors coming aboard and do all the marketing and staffing. So it's a high barrier to entry as, a, as an organization to get started with that. So that being said, that means it's only 10% of your net worth to get involved in these investment vehicles. Yeah, I love that. And I kind of want to move on to that portion of the show because you talk about how to 10x your investment like a venture capitalist. So I want to kind of quickly walk the listeners through maybe a scenario or how they would be able to do that. If we're targeting 15% returns over a five-year period, that rounds about to almost doubling your money with something like that. One of the investment vehicles we have to offer as far as venture capitalists and venture capitalist firms are we believe that in the industry, there they're may become obsolete because people are going directly to the consumer to invest in startups and to companies. And so if you look at, uh, in the news recently, I think there's an article on Kobe Bryant and how he invested $6 million into a company and he made $200 million on it. So that's a case where he, that's more than 10x. What's the math on that? Is that like 300x or 30x? <laughs> trying to figure that out in my head. 30x? Yeah, I think it's yeah. 32x or something. So that's an example. Now those are going to be open up to the general public to do those types of things. We'll be offering those on our, our platform as well down the road. Yeah, I love that. And in the past, I would say that, you know, we think, I guess the general public would think like, you know, you hear, and I was watching this show called uh, Hard Knocks the other day. I don't, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of that show, but I was watching the show called Hard Knocks the other day. It's basically the training camp of the Cleveland Browns. And there's a, there's a guy on the team and he's quote unquote, the team's like financial analyst. And he was telling the, the guys, he was like, Hey, if you invest 10% of your money, these new contract guys are making like, you know, yeah. $10 million. If you invest 10% of your money, you can double your money in five or 10 years or something like that. And they were arguing with him. It was like, there's no way we can find a ten, you know, an investment that's returning 10%. And he was just like, yes, you can. They were like, no, nothing, nothing in the world does that. And he was just like, well, you guys just don't know about it. I saw, saw the that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was great. I remember that guy. The guy has got a, he's got a, they're making fun of his name. He's got a regular name. It's like, yeah, I think it was Carl. I think it was Carl. <laughs> you know, you think about the fact that the average Joe doesn't know about these investments. And it may be one thing to maybe know about these investments, but to be able to get in, to be able to hear about, to be able to, you know, like you said, be in the right circles to be able to hear about these investments. The doubling down is not for us to be like, oh, well, you know, we don't have, we're not privy to this. So therefore, it's not possible for us to grow wealth. I think that the doubling down, especially by the SEC, was in more so a preventative measure for people not being frauded. 
because you're not a sophisticated investor, because you're, you haven't gotten to the level to where you can invest 100000 or whatever the case may be, and you don't actually know the rules of the game. You don't actually know what's going on. So it's almost a preventative measure to say, not until you're accredited or not until you're sophisticated, whatever the case may be, that's when you're able to kind of get in on these multi-million dollar deals. So people should motivate themselves to get to these stages. And this platform is one of the ways that you can do that earlier on before you get to that level. But just know that that level is not something that you should take lightly because once you do get there, it's like a, a dog eat dog world. Yeah. And, and that's the fine line with regulation, regulations and, and rights. So I sometimes think too much regulation might rob you some of your rights. You, you have a right to do what you should be able to do, but there should be some kind of regulation attached to that as well. So I like that 10% liquidity rule. I think that's really a, a stickler that it should be only 10% of your net worth into something. So you're not really sticking all your eggs in one basket. When they overregulate stuff, they exclude a lot of people. So how are you supposed to gain wealth in this country when only certain people can do it? And when they already have the wealth, it's like they're 10X in their wealth where you're sitting here like, well, what the hell's going on? And that's what everyone's been complaining about lately. And so that's what we, you know, here is a mechanism where we could, we could do it. And one of the things we need to promote us ourselves and other owners such as myself, these platforms, we need them all of us to be successful. We can't just have one platform dominate the marketplace. We want to see like, I want to see hundreds of platforms be successful. Yeah. I don't want to hear that bad actor platform. I want to have more positive ones because if you do that and it just gets more people involved. And so we kind of have to grow and I wish we could do this together and have all these companies kind of grow together and not just have, you know, there's not one bank out there. There's multiple banks. Yeah, so for we'll sure. I love that. I love that. So Craig, let me ask you this. What advice would you give a smart, you know, young driven professional who's, you know, in the real world, who's been there for a couple of years, who's maybe invested in the company's mm-hmm. 401k and they're looking to diversify. They're looking to start making a little bit of money and they don't kind of know how much to maybe put into real estate, where to get started, who to turn to. What, what advice do you have for this, for this young professional looking to kind of start investing? Yeah, I would definitely start small, get involved in some alternative investments, uh, start out with a small real estate portfolio, definitely try our site out because the buried entry is small on ours and see how that works for yourself. Get started at an early age. It's great. See how your wealth builds up. And you start, if you have the money in your twenties and you start looking at your thirties or significant gains going. So that's one of the biggest things I would do. Uh, educate yourself as much as you can. There's a lot of stuff on our site. We have a lot of educational components on our site as well. And uh, yeah, get busy getting involved in the game. Well, let's close out the segment with this. In the past five years, what have you personally become better at saying no to? So these can be distractions, maybe invitations, things that, you know, maybe have you losing your focus for a minute. What have you become better at guarding your time at or saying no to? Is this business or about my wife? Which one are we talking about? <laughs> definitely talking about business. You know, I don't fall for that shiny object anymore. It's that big event with uh, a lot of fancy people. And uh, we, always, we always get exposed to that. So I've just been around the block a few times that I'm really kind of looking at the nuts and bolts of a transaction to get involved with. That you, get, you get a lot of that in real estate. Uh, you just, hey, just get more to the point, shorter conversation. Uh, show, show me the numbers, show me the deal. So it's the shiny object thing. I, that encompasses a lot of things in, in, in real estate. But the other thing is that big up building relationships and rapport with people. I don't like getting pitched too much on something. I want to get to know someone first. There's enough people out there with good products. I'd really more looking at building a long-term relationship with somebody as well. So I, I like to build a rapport with somebody first before I do business with them. I love that. Love that. Great advice from a wise man. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks.
What is your favorite Before the Millions book? I have an old Napoleon Hill Law of Success book. It's like a 12 to 1500 page book. Nice, nice. Law of Success. I love it. Next question. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. I have a running app I use because I run like three days a week. What's uh, the app? I need it. <laughs> it's like a Nike run app. Yeah. Use that and then apps just for functionality stuff, the social media apps. I'm in, on social media, LinkedIn a lot. So. Okay, nice, nice, nice. And we'll have the links to some of that in the show notes as well. So listeners definitely check that out. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I think the best thing that I got going for myself is we're located in downtown San Diego. Where I live is, is about three blocks away and I have two young girls as daughters and I'm able to take a break if they're around and walk five minutes to see them if I want to in the, big, in the middle of the day. And that's my biggest support staff. So that's, I'm fortunate enough to have that while I'm building this company here. Lifestyle design, there you guys have it. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? There's a lot of sacrifices you have to make. Uh, for one is I've been, re- I just recently had kids over the last five years. So I'm in my forties. So it just took a little bit l- longer in life for me to really uh, go through what I needed to go through before I wanted to start a family. So that was a, a big sacrifice. I had opportunities, but I just wanted to really take care of my business and myself first and my experiences first. That was big. And nothing else is really a sacrifice. It's just been a, a choice. Yeah. So I can't say that's a, a sacrifice with anything else. Just as you mature, you, your friendships change, and your habits change, you, and things you like to do change. So what you thought was uh, something fun maybe in your 20s or 30s, now you, you, don't feel, you wouldn't be doing the same things. So I, w- I wouldn't call that a sacrifice. But for instance, like staying out late at night, you say, hey, I sacrificed that. But that's when you're older, it's not it's not as fun. So it's not really a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, totally. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Gotta say, it's, I look back and I've gotten that question a bunch of times. And I always, and I, I got a little post I put together. But at the end of the day, it's it, I would say the biggest mentor in my life is probably my mother and what she went through in her life. And she's a hard charger and she was uh, born. And when she was born, her mother actually... Uh, passed away and uh, it's a sad story it's just she was pretty much kind of grew up on her own bouncing around from relative to relative and I saw how she persevered and made herself quite successful and really was kind of took charge of our family so I always look at her as my mentor yeah for sure I can totally relate to that last but not least why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions even though we have every intention of getting to the millions we're just stuck in our heads. (laughs) No, we're just stuck in our heads. We have whatever you want to call it. I think there's a lot of self-defeating behaviors that people do for whatever reason. People have that internal dialogue going on in their head, which creates doubt and fear. You just got to get out of your own head. You got to do it. What's the big deal? You have to fail. You have to learn. Get rid of that word failing. Get rid of that word trying. Just do. There's no try. There's just do. Just do it. And then you learn from it. Do it again. Learn from it. And just, you know, just try your best. Our thoughts are what gives meaning to everything. Nothing has meaning until your thoughts put meaning behind that. So I totally, totally resonate with that. Craig, yeah, that's beautiful. I loved our conversation. I'm so happy we're able to have you on the show. I mean, this is, I've gotten a lot of value out of this conversation. I know the listeners have as well. If anybody wants to reach out to you, connect with you, learn a little bit more about Diverse Fund, get involved. Where can they find some of your information? 
It's pretty easy. Go to our website, diversityfund.com. My social media handles are pretty simple. No one really has my last name, Craig Cecilio. Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, I'm pretty much on all the time. Nice, nice, nice. And again, guys, we will have all those links in the show notes. So please check those out. Again, Craig, this has been a fascinating episode and I cannot wait for us to reconnect again. So we will talk to you very, very soon. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate. Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon.